Uh, wonderful to be here at Bina with our church family this morning. My name's Alex. Last name's Stark. If you're a young person in the room, you'll know that with that last name comes great responsibility. Marvel Cinematic Universe fans out there, raise your hands nice and high. Wonderful. Uh, my wife and I have the privilege of leading New Life Brisbane. And our heart is that we too would see happen at New Life Brisbane what God by His Spirit is doing across the life of our family of churches. And we've got one word that summarizes that activity of God, renewal. We want to be a people in whom God renews something, through whom God renews something, and because of which we see renewal in our midst, through our midst, within our family of churches, the denomination of which we're a part, and dare I say, across Australia. If you're a young person in the room, just want to mention uh, you're in the service with us and you're in for a really great time. Can I invite you to lean in, hang around, stay here, long to just shoulder to shoulder, be a family together. And uh, one of the things I love about coming to Rabina is uh, just one thing, really simple, air conditioning, right? <laughs> How good is it? If you're tuning in online, why don't you just type in the chat something you love about tuning in from the room that you're sitting in. But regardless of the room that we're in today, we all sit here as a family, Amen. So with that, let me just uh, step into what we're going to be talking about. We're continuing the series today titled Crucial Conversations. And our heart for the series is really simple. It's we, we want to respond to the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. We believe that Christianity is not just a worldview that can articulate helpful answers to culture. It's a way which models something itself which is different. That the good news we proclaim is not just information about a guy from the first century who we claim to be God, Saviour and Lord, but it's a very people in whose midst you can belong no matter your background, because of whom you'll experience a depth of hospitality and welcome, and maybe too would find yourself proclaiming, yeah, I think Jesus is Lord. I met him in the face of those who claim to follow him. And so our heart here is to model what it looks like to have crucial conversations, unpacking topics that are relevant to our culture, both within and outside the church, but then too, to catalyze God's people, us, you, we, all together, to take this conversation into our workplaces, into our families, and into our communities. That this wouldn't be the last word on any topic that gets shared over this series, but it'd be the first word that reverberates in and through the life that we all have outside of this moment on Sunday. Today, I'm looking at a topic called connection, contending for relationship in a technological world. And as I do so, I want you to have two words in your mind, and I want to tell two brief stories. The words are personalized and personal. Personalized and personal. A few years ago, there was a movie released by the name of Her, and it tells the story of a guy named Theodore Twombly. He's just gotten divorced. He's lonely and he gets depressed. And in this post-divorced, lonely and depressed state, he seeks comfort in technology. What he does is he goes and buys a device and on that device is an operating system, sort of like a personal assistant. And he comes to call this assistant Samantha. Now Samantha's voice, you don't see her face, you only experience her voice through the device. Samantha's voice is played by Scarlett Johansson. So you just imagine this like husky, lulling, beautiful voice coming through this device. And he gets to know this device, Samantha, ends up building a relationship with her. And in building a relationship with her, again, this literally this piece of software, this uh, artificial intelligence, if you will, kind of like, hey Google or Siri, you know what I mean? Builds a relationship, becomes friends. 
And then he actually gets intimate with her. Now, don't know how, it's hard to explain. Watch the movie if, you know, PG-15, I don't know. But gets intimate with her. And then he has a conversation with her and asks her this question. How many other people are you in relationship with, Samantha? And she says, oh, a couple of thousand. And then she says, the biggest blow of all, and I've fallen in love with a few hundred of them. And the movie ends, Theodore Twombly, in a highly personalized, technology-rich world, alone on his balcony, looking across the New York or Chicago skyline, just by himself. Personalized. Tell you another story. Uh, a lady named Marina Evelyn Keegan. Born 1989, real human, real person, real story. Died in 2012. Studied at Yale University, incredibly promising career. She'd lined up a job for herself at the New York Times once she'd graduated university. But in the summer holidays, she was in a car just north of Massachusetts, and the car gets into a car crash, loses her life. When she was living, the reason she scored the job at the New York Times is because she was an incredible writer, and she wrote this essay called The Opposite of Loneliness. Went viral after her death, 1.4 plus million downloads online. And in it, she talks about what it means to be lonely and what it means to experience what she might call a personal world. Not a personalized world, but a personal world. She said this, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. It's not quite love, it's not quite community, it's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together, who are on your team. And my favorite line is, when the check is paid and no one leaves the table. Have you had that experience? When there's no reason anyone should remain at the table, but people stay because they've connected with you in a personal way. You've come to call them friend, community, family. Beautiful picture, wonderful poetry. When the check is paid and no one leaves the table, personalized with the resultant loneliness or personal with genuine community. Connection, contending for relationship in a technological world. I want to be honest, as I unpack this topic, there's a few sort of like confessions I need to make and there's some people in the room and online that I just need to acknowledge really quickly. The confession is this, when I was researching this topic, I've researched this topic for like the last decade. This is dear to my heart because I'm concerned with us becoming more like Jesus and I don't just think we need to think the right things to get there. I think we need to become through habits and rhythms and disciplines in an embodied way. And technology actually plays a part in hindering and helping that. But when I was researching this topic, I text my wife, Kath, and I was like, babe, I think I'm just going to tell everyone to throw their phones out. <laughs> and she said, good, just do it towards the back end so that way people listen to you. No, I'm kidding. But like, this is genuinely where I was starting because the more you research this topic, the more you sort of get into the rigmarole of the content, it's like, this is, goodness me, there's a lot to this. But then I was thinking through who might be in the room and actually some of my own story. And I just got to acknowledge a few things. There might be people here today whose full-time job is utilizing technology to make an income. 
Now, on one level, that's all of our story because technology is as simple as like the invention of the wheel down to 2007, the invention of the iPhone. Like it, it, technology is an all-encompassing term. But there might be people in the room who, let, I'll give you an example, in, at New Life Brisbane, we've got someone whose full-time role is as a YouTuber. Now, if you don't know what that is, basically, they film videos of themselves full-time, invite people to have a window into their lives, because of which they post these videos online, people watch them, and through the advertising that pops up while you watch the video, they make a little income. Full-time job. So how can we talk about connection and technology in a way that allows them to help helpful reflection, but not feel like they're doing the wrong thing? Great question. If you have any answers, it would be really helpful. Other people in the room might be Gen Z, or what we might call young people. Can I just get a shout out from the young people in the room? Three of you, awesome, great to have you with us. But you're in the room, and here's the, here's the truth. If you're born after 1995, you don't, know a world, you don't know what a world without technology looks like, particularly devices. You, you, you don't know. We call you digitally native. Uh, you've grown up since 2007, the invention of the iPhone and Facebook, and you live in a world steeped in devices. The devices each of us have in our pocket right now, smartphone, doesn't matter what brand you're after, debate that in the courtyard, but the device you have in your phone has more technology and computing capacity than was needed from the original engineers to send the first man to the moon 50 plus years ago. Isn't that staggering? But Gen Z are in the room, and you don't know a world without technology, and here's what's going to happen. There's going to be an, a, a slightly older person next to you, more mature person, and they're going to be like, I'm really stoked my young person is listening to this sermon. <laughs> because their boundaries with these devices, it's just, it's, in, it's lacking, you know? But here's something interesting. In, in the US, Barna, a research group in partnership with a guy named Andy Crouch, remember that name, wonderful thinker on this topic, they did some studies to ascertain, they were trying to discover this question, asking Gen Z, those born after 1995, if you could change one thing about your childhood, what would it be? And the highest voted answer to that question was this, I wish my parents weren't on their phones as much as they were. What does this mean? It means if you sit here thinking yourself immune from what I'm about to unpack, you might be a little bit mistaken. That there's something about this topic that challenges us equally, but at the same time, differently. It asks us all to reflect and take it forward in prayer and in community, thinking, man, how do I contend for a relationship in a technological world? And here's the one question I've got. What's the life you're looking for? What life do we want, church? Who do we want to become? And how could we, in a technologically rich world, get there? To answer that question just briefly from a biblical point of view, I want us to look at what we might call one of the most famous passages of the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and onwards. Now this passage, still to this very day, they'll have formal scribes that take this text, write it down on a piece of scroll, put it in a box called the mezuzah. And faithful Jews, to this day, will nail that box to the doorpost of the front door of their house at shoulder height so that when you walk through the door, you're reminded of this central passage of the Old Testament. And here's the passage, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. 
Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The rabbis, they debated this passage. And they debated this one question. How would you summarize the entire Old Testament, the 39 books that make up the story of God with the Israelites? How would you summarize it? If you had 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible, all these radical sayings of these like weird prophets towards the back end of the 39 books, how would you summarize? And the rabbis had one answer. They were unanimous in articulating this answer. And it was simply this, Deuteronomy 6.5, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. But then in the first century, this rock star rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, he turns up on the scene. And the religious elite, they ask him this same question. How would you summarize? Like how, 39, that's a lot of text. That's a lot of content. How would you, what's, what's the tweet, Jesus? And Jesus is like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And in Mark's gospel, he adds something, two things, mind, And then he adds one more command on the back end of it. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And then number two, love your neighbor as yourself. We're looking at technology. And when you ask the question around how we should relate to technology, it begs the question as to what human life is for. And here's the biblical picture. We are a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex. And our destiny is that we would grow in those capacities as we become people of love. Love toward God, love toward neighbor, and ultimately love within ourselves, this sort of self-awareness that sees our growing in ourselves as part of our discipleship, not abstract from it, removed from it, but this growth as people of love. Let me put it this way. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you're not a Christian, you've got no faith background, or you're tuning in online, you just have all these questions about Christianity. And a lot of people will say, oh, the the questions of Christianity, they're they're really narrow and acute, and it's about religion. This kind of text alerts us to the fact that the Bible's got a vision for what it means to be human. It's way bigger than this thing you do on a Sunday. It's this all-of-life-encompassing invitation to reality. And here's what it says. We would say, you are a heart. You're a heart. You have this drive within you, this passion within you, these desires within you that lead you to chase after your definition of the good life and aim towards the horizon of what pulls on the strings of the innermost parts of yourself. You are a heart. You have drive. You have passion. The Bible's not surprised by this. You are a soul. That in other words, there's something interior to you, something on the inside of you, that if you were to meet someone on the street and say, are they just a bag of flesh and blood? The biblical answer would be no. That there's something that is more than meets the eye, something more to the meat of what you see in the person next to you. You are a soul. And you'll spend the rest of your life trying to discover this interior part to yourself, trying to let someone else, if you call them a soulmate, discover this interior part to yourself. You are a strength. Uh, I can't remember the Hebrew word for this, but it's better translated as muchness, that there is a muchness to being human. And uh, I love what Andy Crouch says. He says, you know, humans in their strength, they don't have the agility of a cat. They don't have the speed of a leopard. They don't even have the strength of a bull. But human beings, in a way that's so unique to all other creatures, they combined agility, speed, and strength in a way that no other can. There's something so unique to being human and the strength that we have and are growing in. 
And lastly, you're a mind. That, in other words, you have this ability to reflect, to reason, to think about the way you live life and actually try and be intentional and examine and walk forward with purpose. You are a mind. You are a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex, designed for love. And this is the biblical picture of what you were made for. So if we are heart, soul, mind, strength creatures, is that not a beautiful definition within which we can think helpfully and with nuance about technology? Sherry Turkle, she's a psychologist from MIT, and she wrote a book years ago called Alone Together. Has anyone ever just felt like sometimes we're living life alone together? The subtitle of the book is just scary, it's harrowing. She says, why we expect more from technology and less from one another. She had this really helpful phrase when trying to unpack how technology shapes us and what it might mean to think well about technology. She said this, Technology doesn't just do things for us, it does things to us, changing not just what we do, but who we are. She was also asked, hey, what do you think about technology? Just in broad terms, what do you think? And she said, I don't think technology is good. I don't think it's evil. I think it's powerful. I want to get us to think about this for ourselves for a moment. On the screen behind me, there's two images. One, both of which I can use the title play to summarize what these images represent. I can play the violin and I can play music on my device through this Spotify play button. I wondered if I asked you, what's the difference between these two kinds of play? What might you say? Why don't we take 30 seconds and start to articulate, just turn to a neighbor, a group of two or three, and just ask, what are some of the ways, and we'll go to the floor, and I'll ask two or three people afterwards, online, jump in the chat, and start to articulate some of the ways in which this might be different as you think about play. Violin, Spotify, go for it, 30 seconds. Fifteen seconds. Five seconds left. We'll wrap that up now. Three, two, and one. Wonderful. Hey, why don't we just take a moment, go to the floor. I'll repeat what you say, but raise your hand nice and high, and I'll just shout out, yes, hand first up there, right in the middle. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This person has said you have to use your mind and effort in playing a violin, whereas with the play button, you just press play. Wonderful. Thank you. Two more people. Hands nice and high. Great. Down the front here. Wonderful, beautiful, beautiful answer. This person has said they themselves are a musician, and when you pick up an instrument, in a way that's unique, you connect your soul to it. Whereas with a button, it's just a bit harder. Interesting. One more. 
Wonderful. Right up the back there, nice and loud. Yep, indeed. Beautiful. Yeah, okay. Someone at the 8 a.m. was the last person I chose said that as well. This person has said, one, you're consuming, the other, you're creating. No, I didn't plant these people in the congregation this morning. This is just God's doing something and wonderful. One, you're consuming, one, you're creating. Here's my question. Does that make Spotify evil? No. What does it make Spotify What does it make other ways by which to experience ease and elegance and beauty at the push of a button? What does it make those things? In other words, what does it make technology? And this is the paradox of technology. I'll give you some more examples before I give you something of an answer. I was at small group the other night, and there's there's beauty to technology. Here's, Here's the major point. There's beauty and elegance and ease to technology. I was at small group the other night, and some of my friends in small group were talking about how they work in IT, and uh, they're coders. Which, in my opinion, code language is like tongues for the modern business world, right? Like, it shouldn't happen without an interpretation. Can I get an amen? But, so, they were talking about code, and they were just so pumped about it. They were like, we solve problems, technological problems, and we use this gobbledygook to get there. I'm just like, bless you. Go for it. That's awesome. But it was wonderful to see them get so excited. I'll give you another example. Uh, Right now, we have people tuning in from all over Australia and sometimes across the world for church online. Why don't we just be mindful of them for a moment in the room? And church online is this wonderful amplification of our gathering for the sake of cultivating gatherings in microforms across Australia and the world. Beautiful. Wonderful. Another example would be someone at New Life Brisbane, they, uh, not a Christian, term two this year, Googled Alpha, found our Alpha course, rocked up alone. Such courage, incredible. Turned up, journeyed through Alpha, encountered the Holy Spirit on the day away. That person's in my small group, and they are now part of the leadership team for Alpha at New Life Brisbane. In like three months, all because we made the mission of God funneled through technology. Technology is incredible. But then at the same time, technology has some kicks to it, particularly the devices in our pockets. I'll give you a few examples. In 2016, there was a psychologist from Cambridge, Wolfgang Schuler, and he did some research and basically discovered why pokey machines are so addictive. And he said, pokey machines are addictive because the reward system, because it's random, it hijacks the dopamine reward system in the brain, by virtue of which it glues people's attention to the pokey machine, because of which the pokey machine gets their money. What's addictive about it is the random reward cycle. So if I put money in, get money back, wouldn't be as addictive. But if I put money in, get a bit back, then put more money in, get nothing back, put a bit more money in, get a little bit back, so on and so forth, and it's random, that is like addictive as. And Roger McNamee, he used to work at the executive level leadership team for Facebook. He said, we designed Facebook to give similar random rewards through notifications, to glue people to their screens, and help them give over the one thing that's the most valuable thing they ever could. What's that? Their attention. In 2018, the then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Theresa May, she appointed someone 
in the cabinet for the, as, as the Minister of Loneliness. Solo job. <laughs> Not my joke. Great to use it. And there's this epidemic of loneliness sweeping the nations, particularly the Western world. Same year, Swinburne University got together with APS. They did a study asking Australians how lonely they might feel, and one in four said, we feel lonely from time to time. Jean Twenge, an American psychologist, she did her PhD. She had four sets of data taken from surveys in the US. And she notes that from 2007 onwards, there's this been this exceeding hike in anxiety, depression, and loneliness, mental health issues. And the point she makes is that that date correlates with the date from which the iPhone, and particularly social media, was invented. Now, if I was to ask us, does that make these things evil? The answer is no, but here's, here's a better question. What does that make these things? And the answer is, for particular technologies, it makes them intentional, that they have a will, and they want to form something in us, using our attention to get there. It's the paradox of technology, wonderfully beautiful, incredibly elegant. I've got two quotes before we move on and get practical. Andy Crouch has both of them. He says this, is it a coincidence or just a kind of grand irony that loneliness has spiked just as our media became social, our technology became personal, and our machines learned to recognize our faces? My answer to that is no. Why? Quote number two, because here's the paradox and here's the heart of it. Technology is a brilliant, praiseworthy expression of human creativity and cultivation of the world, but it is at best neutral in actually forming human beings who can create and cultivate as we were meant to. Let me put it this way. Three brief things. You are a heart, soul, mind, strength complex made for love. That is you. That is me. That is us. And technology is a wonderful fruit of those capacities when they're developed. But if we live our lives plugged in to the Twitter sphere, insulated by devices, we will find those capacities dulled over time, hindered. And technology, therefore, will have this ability to disentangle us from one another and deform us as the people God intended us to be. But if we contend, if we say, no, I want to be intentional. No, I agree with the biblical picture of being human. No, I want to be a heart, soul, mind, strength made for and given over to love. If we contend, man, it will enable our relationships with one another. And it will energize us to become the people God has called us to So here's my question. If we were made for this kind of love, heart, soul, mind, and strength, how are we going to develop it? Like, how are we going to get there? Modern psychology and ancient wisdom agree that the way you get from point A to B is not just by thinking new thoughts, but by practicing new rhythms. Both agree. The way of Jesus and modern psychology agree on this point, which is why a few years ago I was reading a book called The Nudge uh, by, uh, who's written it? Thaler and Sunstein. And they make the point, if you want to become a certain kind of person, usually we think about getting to point B through discipline. I'll give you an example. Imagine you want to train and become a marathon runner. From the inside out of you, in a fitness capacity, you want to be a marathon runner. And so you think, ah, I need the discipline of running every day. Got to run. Got to work out. 
got to get going. And so you wake up, day one, go for a run, tick. Day two, go for a run, tick. But day three, you're a bit tired. It's just a bit harder. And you wake up and you're looking for your joggers and you're just like, ah, nah, going back to bed. And you fail to outwork the discipline you know will help you become the kind of person who can run marathons. That's what disciplines are. We know, psychologically speaking, that we've only got a certain amount of energy to outwork the disciplines that we want to aim towards. And in that space, there's something else you can do. It's called the nudge. Rather than trying to become internally, through discipline, the right kind of person, you can externally organize your environment to nudge you in the direction of your discipline. So back to the running analogy. Think about this with me. Day three, I'm tired. So what if I, the night before, take my joggers, my running pants, charge my Garmin, get a glass of water, and set that up in the bathroom, ready to go for when I wake up? I organize my environment in a way that tilts me to be able to outwork the discipline I know will get me to be the kind of person I need to be. It's called the nudge. So I wake up, oh, it's all ready for me. Easy. Garment on, shoes on, out the door, piece of cake. Still hard, but what's the point? Disciplines are where you increase your internal capacity. Nudges are where you organize your external environment, both of which get to be used to help you become the kind of person you need to become. I'm talking about fitness. What about for the way of Jesus? In your phone, in, in your pocket right now, there's a device, and every few minutes, if you let it, it will nudge you. And when it nudges you, whether with breaking news or a message from a friend or a like on Instagram, it's asking for your attention. And in giving over your attention, you're giving the most valuable asset you have to a device. Not evil. Not bad, but formative. Well, think about it this way. It's not just the notification on your phone that's a nudge. It's the very presence of your phone in your pocket that is a nudge. Think about the way you organize your living room at home. If someone was to take a cross-section audit of your living room, what would they say your environment is nudging you towards? For me, it's the TV, right smack bang in center. Does that make TV bad or wrong? No, but it just begs us to ask this question. What's the life I'm looking for? Who's the person I'm called to become? So with disciplines and nudges as a framework in mind, I'd love to invite the band up, and I just want to give us six practical things to walk away thinking about. My hope here is not to give you rules that I've implemented in my life because I fail all the time. It's to give us ways by which to reflect so that if you're a young person here, someone who's more mature here, or if you're here with your family, you walk away thinking... How can I make one change because of which I will, over time, become the kind of person who longs and experiences connection? So six things, real brief, as we finish our time. Number one, take an audit of your micro-practices. I ask people all the time, you know, who are you? What do you do? And people often answer that question with, like, the big things they do in life. So they say, I do this for work or I have these relationships. You know one of the most formative things in your life is not the big things you do, but the small things you do? between the big things you do? What do I mean? You're out for dinner with your spouse. You come home. You've got five minutes before bed. Other than like the teeth routine and the makeup takeoff routine, etc. what do you find yourself leaning towards? For me, I love watching cooking videos on YouTube. I froth it. There's these things called shorts these days. One minute. 
And they're like all these colors and all these sounds and it's just so intoxicating and I'm just, I'm there. And all of a sudden that five minutes is gone and one of us is snoring. You know, it's like done. If you were to take an audit, a cross section, a look, journal about your practices between the big things you do in life, what would you find? None of it would be wrong. The question you need to ask is, well, what's the life I'm looking for? Number two, shape space for creativity. So many of the spaces we have, whether it's our home or our office, we shape them so that they would reward us for consumption, what someone so helpfully said before. What would it look like if you shaped the space you live in and you worked in to reward you for creativity? Good example would be this. Years ago, the heart of the house was the fireplace. To build a fire is really difficult, but so rewarding. For most of us, it's the TV. It doesn't make one better than the other, but it acknowledges the fact that we are a heart, soul, mind, strength, capacity, and man, wouldn't it be awesome if we grew as people that cultivated those capacities that God's given us? And a fireplace is a really wonderful way to do that. Third, structure time for work and rest. We talk all the time at New Life about the practice of Sabbath, how the human was made to work and to rest and to work and to rest. But we so easily trade that for, for toil and, and leisure and our hearts just find themselves wanting. What would it look like if you, one hour a day, one day a week and one week a year, structured time for work and rest, time for Sabbath? And here's a question. What if you rested your devices for that time as well. Who would you become as you jump on that journey? Fifth, keep the bedroom, sorry, fourth, keep the bedroom sacred. There's something so holy about those moments when you wake up and those minutes when you go to bed. What would it look like just to wake up and rather than reach for your phone and get an update, just to say like the psalmist, oh, God, your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, Lord. And as you go to bed, just this recognition that as you sleep, God doesn't, so you can. Years ago, my wife and I, we bought an alarm clock, and it's not, it's not chic, it's, it's not... But man, those moments, they just get richer and richer the more you get used to them. It doesn't make us holy in this area it, it, it's all invitation all framework all prompts for you to reflect what would it look like to keep the bedroom sacred fifth engage devices with a specific purpose all of us have had that experience where you might be with a friend or a colleague and they say hey can you get me this person's contact details you get your phone out and you start to use it and then five minutes later you're like you've neither done what they asked you and you ask yourself the question, now why did I get on my phone again? And what we know about devices and human psychology is like that's intentional. Your attention is the most valuable thing you can give over and our devices are given to consuming our attention. And so what it would look like if you said, okay, I'm going to be really intentional whenever I use my device, whatever device that is. So it might be, man, I need this for... I need this information for this church event, go online, jump off. Or I need this contact detail for this friend, go online, jump off. 
what would it look like if you're intentional with your devices? And lastly, really simply, chase awe and wonder. Psalm 19 says it like this, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Scientists have documented that 10 minutes in nature has such a profound effect on the human being And the scriptures for millennia, for thousands of years have been saying, yeah, get into nature. God will preach to you through it. What would it look like if you chased awe and wonder, got used to creation in this world, didn't settle for the dull blue glow of a screen, but put yourself out in nature, maybe made yourself vulnerable to it, just to feel your finitude, your limitedness again. What a wonderful place you'd find yourself in if you experienced awe and wonder in the face of creation and even better, in the face of our Creator. Can I invite you to stand? Here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine a people so intentional with technology that we neither say it's good or evil, we acknowledge it's powerful and on the way we become the kind of people that if you are new in this community, your testimony would be this. That New Life Church, they're just so present in conversation. Or maybe you're a Christian visiting today and you get invited to a small group and you experience week in, week out, and your testimony from that experience is they really understand what it means to connect with one another. I genuinely felt like they listened to me. Imagine the force of a people en masse, number as big as this, And we were intentional with technology in such a way that we genuinely took concrete steps to becoming like Jesus. And friends, by the Spirit, connected with God Himself, that's entirely possible. There's a little nudge for us. Pray for Alpha, 11.02. We'll pray for Alpha at the end of our service, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. When we talk about disciplines and nudges and principles and framework, it's not an end in itself. This is all a means by which we can turn our eyes towards the God who made us for himself. That's all it serves. And from that place, turning to one another afresh, looking for and guaranteeing connection. And so can I just encourage us, we're about to do a heart, soul, mind, strength exercise in praising God. And we're about to turn our eyes towards Jesus. As we sing in this moment, can I encourage you, bring your whole self to this moment and let all that we've talked about prompt reflection later and catalyze worship right now. So let's sing, friends.